Hello, and thanks for listening into the Trinity Church Nottingham podcast. We're a church in Nottingham, England, with a vision to see the church on fire and the city alive. You're about to hear a message in a series called Thy Kingdom Come, where we're walking line by line through the Lord's Prayer. Now, I hope for this series that we'll be inspired and equipped to go deeper in the lifelong adventure of prayer. I hope you enjoy the message. It's May 1940. And the British Expeditionary Force are in rapid retreat against Nazi advance. The British generals write in their their diary, only a miracle can save us now. So King George VI calls a national day of prayer. The nation is on its knees. And after this day of prayer, three things happen. Three incredible things happen. Hitler commands against the, all the advice of his, command, of his army generals. He commands the Nazi army to halt. They are, at this point, 10 miles away from the troops, the British troops. History is yet to explain why on earth he did that. Secondly... There is a storm that happens inland, which means that the Luftwaffe, the the German aircrafts, can't get up in the sky to bomb the the British troops on their way to the coast, on their way to Dunkirk. But strangely, thirdly, the thing that happens at the coast is that the, the weather is very peaceful and calm, which allows British vessels to come across, you may know this part of the story, lots of civilian ships started to cross the channel to get the troops off the beaches. Three incredible things happen, which mean that overall 338,000 men were saved that day. Only 45,000 of them were predicted to be, have been able to be saved otherwise. What an incredible event. What, what was happening here? What was happening here? Because Here we have this nation on their knees, the kingdom was crumbling around them, and in a national move of humility, of surrender, they get on their knees and pray, God, do a miracle. Do a miracle. I'm sure so many people uttered the words of the Lord's Prayer that day. And we've been in this season over Lent of of letting Jesus teach us how to pray again, using the Lord's Prayer. Johnny has unpacked for us Um, The first two lines, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Intimate and yet untamed. And then we come to these lines, your kingdom come, God, your will be done. You see, these lines there, you've probably prayed them quite a lot, and you've probably talked about the kingdom of God quite a lot. I know I have, but... I wonder how much they become Christian jargon. This idea of the kingdom of God, what are we even talking about? Let's just spend a few minutes just unpacking what the kingdom of God is. And the word kingdom of God comes from these two words. You know the first, king and dom. Dom stands for domain. So the kingdom of God is God's domain. It's wherever God is king. That is what it means. The kingdom of God is wherever God is in control. And Jesus didn't just pluck this idea of the kingdom of God out of thin air when he told us to pray it in Matthew 6. 
There is this theme running right the way through the Old Testament of the kingdom of God. Israel was meant to be a sign to the rest of the nations of what it looked like when God was their king. You might even understand the Old Testament to be this idea, this sort of like Israel's wrestle with God as their one and only king, which indicates to us that perhaps they didn't do the task that was assigned to them. They didn't manage to keep God as their one and only king. And so we have this challenge faced to the world that we see Jesus picking up in the New Testament. You see, a lot of people have talked about the idea of the kingdom of God being God's people in God's place under God's rule. And Israel should have been the herald of what that looked like. So then we fast forward into the New Testament and we, we hear John the Baptist call when he says, repent, the kingdom of God is near. He is heralding Jesus as the one who will come and fulfill the task that Israel didn't manage to fulfill. The lines of the Lord's Prayer read, your kingdom come, your will be done. Well, the second line here clarifies what the first line means. The kingdom of God looks like when God's will is being done. And ultimately, God's will is Jesus Christ. God's will is manifest in the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You might have noticed Jesus talking about the kingdom of God. They usually start with, the kingdom of God looks like. And there's often clues in there that actually point you back to Jesus himself. We don't have time to look at them all this morning, but I just encourage you to go through the Gospels this week and pick out those little bits where it says the kingdom of God looks like, and Jesus is trying to get us to understand what it looks like for him to be king. When we pray your kingdom come, this is about a person. It's about King Jesus. And you see, when, when, we, when we actually love the king, and we know the king, and we know his nature, we eagerly yearn for his kingdom. It's not about an abstract force or an abstract idea that we're trying to kind of will into being when we say your kingdom come. We're praying for a person to come and be king. We're praying for King Jesus. And that is why I wanted to include these maybe slightly left field uh, words from Revelation this morning. Because I think they say something about King Jesus. And I th think they say something about our role in praying with him for the kingdom to come. The passage Miles read to us talks about opening scrolls and seals and all sorts, and I don't have time to get into all the theology now, and maybe we'll do an amazing Revelation series at some point. But for now, um, trust me when I say the Revelation at this point is talking about the end game. It's talking about what it looks like when King Jesus has inaugurated the whole kingdom in its fullness. It's talking about God's control of the kingdom on earth. It says this, Verse 2, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and his seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if he had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne. 
Jesus has done everything that is needed for the kingdom of God to come. Jesus has done it. But there's these interesting words that follow. We skip down to verse 8. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. It's so interesting to me that here, in this passage, that is all about King Jesus and all about his sovereignty, all about his ability to bring the kingdom in fullness, we get mentioned. God invites us into his kingdom story. He invites us into the inauguration of the kingdom here on earth. Are your prayers in those bowls this morning? And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. See, this passage shows us that we have complete assurance that Jesus has done everything that is needed for the kingdom of God to come on earth. And yet, we have this incredible privilege that we're sort of welcomed into to actually be right at the centre of God's plan for the earth. Our prayers are the way that we rule and reign with Christ. Our prayers are the way that we rule and reign with Christ. We have the spiritual authority in our prayers to God, with Jesus, for God's kingdom to come in fullness. He's invited us into a relationship to co-labour with him towards a renewed earth. What a privilege. What a privilege. I don't pretend to fully know what happens when we pray. I don't pretend to fully know what that exchange looks like and even why God chose it to be that way. But I do know that he's invited us into it. So we must have a good reason. Do you know that you've been commissioned by God to call in the rule and reign of Christ in this season today? Do you know that that's your job as a follower of Christ? <laughs> See, I've been getting this sense for a while now that God is releasing a new wave of intercession, of prayer, across the nation, across the world even. It's no longer going to be a few faithful few in a high tower in Scottish Highlands. It's going to be us. It's going to be you and it's going to be me on our knees before God in a posture of surrender, willing God's rule and reign, willing God's kingdom to come more than any other vision for the earth. Walter Wink says this, History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. If this is so, then intercession, far from being an escape from action, is actually a means of focusing for action and creating action. By means of our intercessions, we veritably cast fire upon the earth and trumpet the future into being. They're not quiet, still words, are they? So we have this commission to pray, to intercede for God's kingdom to come. But how do we do it? What does it look like for us to get on our knees before God? What does that actually look like in your day-to-day -day prayer life? I want to take the next few minutes just to 
just to really just give you a bit of a tool that I found quite helpful. It's a sort of cycle, a, a movement of four parts, I guess, that um, get us in this place where we can pray for God's kingdom to come. Repentance, firstly. Compassion, secondly. Prophetic imagination, thirdly. And finally, authority. So let's start with repentance. If we want to pray for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done, we need that to happen in us first. It's pretty difficult to cry your kingdom come if we have other kingdoms in our life that actually we're putting above God. If we're predominantly self-seeking, our allegiance is actually to someone other than God as king. It's why John the Baptist says, repent, the kingdom of God is near. Sin is often our selfish decision, isn't it? And the cry of loyalty to God's kingdom, therefore, needs to be a cry of loyalty, of repentance. It's turning our back on our own kingdom and saying, your will, God, before my own. So for this, for the effectiveness of our prayer, I think it takes us saying, God, your kingdom needs to come in me first. Show me, show me what I am holding too tightly. Show me what I'm putting above you. And guys, this is what fasting's about. This is what we've been banging on about for the past few weeks. We, why we think it's really important. And this is a perfect time to get involved in it, by the way. We're doing it every Wednesday as a church. So join us as we figure out what it looks like to fast as a community. Because fasting is not about twisting God's arm. It's not about trying to convince him to do something that he doesn't want to do. It's about realigning our hearts. Mm. It's about saying, you know, God, I, I'm going to give up all the stuff that makes me comfortable and sometimes even numbs me to the, the reality around me. And it says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seek for your kingdom. I'm going to see, seek for what you want me to do first. And I'm going to rely wholly on you. But I'd really encourage you, if you can, on Wednesdays, to join us in fasting as a church. It's a really great way of aligning your heart and repenting and saying, God, more of you, less of me. And another thing I found really helpful, Amy touched on it this morning, is praying the prayer of examine. You know, this has been, we've, we've been talking about this for, for years now, and, you know, we say do it at the end of the day, you know, it's a great way of just being aware of God's presence and saying, Lord, were you, where were you in that? Was I paying attention to your presence? You know, I've started just doing it in little ways throughout the day. You know, in, in a, after a meeting or, you know, after having lunch with a friend, and I'm just, I, I just pray, I just, God, just show me where I didn't let you in there and help me move through the day in a more focused way. Help me to see you more clearly. That's what little ways of repenting of our selfishness and seeking his kingdom first. Secondly, compassion. We want to pray from compassion. We want to pray from a place of love. Richard Foster writes this, if we truly love people, we will desire for them far more than it is within our power to give them. And this will lead us to prayer. Intercession is a way of loving others. You see, love should be our motivation for prayer. And it, pray, it matters how we pray. The posture of compassion, I think, is essential for the effectiveness of our prayers. We see it right the way through Jesus' ministry. We read that he had compassion on the people that he provided the loaves and fishes for. 
We read in Luke 7, when Jesus is talking to a widow about her son, it says, when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. It says in Matthew 9, 36, that seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited, like sheep without a shepherd. It's clear to me from reading through the way Jesus prayed that having compassion for people actually is a key motivation for praying for others and how we then pray for them. It's clear that Jesus let himself feel. The Son of God let himself feel people's pain. I wonder whether we let ourselves feel enough to pray effective prayers. One of the phrases that's bounded around all around us at the moment is compassion fatigue. This, this idea that, you know, we're just, there's so much suffering that we see on, on through the media, on our TV screens, that actually we just become numb to it. And I wonder whether this sense of apathy that we've kind of bought into as a society is actually stopping us praying the kind of prayers that Jesus prayed. And I wonder the extent to which we lean into the uncomfortability of the reality of people's lives, of the, the situations we're praying for, I wonder how much we'd see change. We need to be informed to pray the right prayers. We need to be informed in our heads. We need to know what God wants us to pray. We need to know what's happening out there. But we also need to be informed in our hearts. We need to be able to say, yes, okay, I'm going to say yes to seeing your pain. That doesn't mean it's the end of the story, but it does mean I have to exit in. We need to know God's heart for people. And God's heart is always the heart of the Father. And if we don't have the posture of God's heart as the Father, then we're going to pray the wrong prayers. Now, does it mean, you might be asking, Joe, does it mean I have to walk around with the weight of the world on my shoulders? Well, no, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that. Because we're called to be hopeful people. Because Jesus, as we've read in Revelation, and as we know throughout Scripture, has done everything that is needed for every person that you encounter, for every situation that you encounter, for redemption. He's done it all. You don't need to take the weight of the cross on your shoulders as he has. He's defeated death and he's defeated evil. He has had the last word. It's our job to draw people into his presence, into his freedom. That's why we can be hopeful intercessors. But being hopeful is not about burying our heads in the sand. Being hopeful is about attention of entering into the reality in front of us and yet believing for God's reality. Mm. When you reveal, when you ask God to reveal his heart for people, he gives you his heart and his hope. But maybe hope is a bit vague. And this is where we move into prophetic imagination. Maybe sometimes we need to be a bit more specific. We've said yes to repentance. We've said yes to God, give me your heart. And maybe we're feeling things differently as we're kind of, you know, imagining us all in our, you know, prayer rooms. And, you know, maybe we've got to that point. We're like, yes, I've got to feel, I feel your, the weight of the pain in the world right now. What do I do with that? What's the hope that you're calling us into? But this idea of prophetic imagination, it sounds a bit fancy, doesn't it? It's not. It's not for the super spiritual of the room. All I mean by, by, by prophetic imagination is simply engaging your imagination that God made and tuning into his voice at the same time. 
It means asking the Holy Spirit to fill your mind with God's future for a person or a situation. It might be as simple as just imagining Jesus walking into a room that he wasn't previously welcome in. Richard Foster tells this beautiful story that I just want to speak to you here about. He says this, I was once called to a home to pray for a seriously ill baby girl. Her four-year-old brother was in the room, and so I told him I needed his help to pray for his baby sister. He was delighted, and so was I, since I know that children can often pray with unusual effectiveness. He climbed up into the chair beside me. Let's play a little game, I said. Since we know that Jesus is always with us, let's imagine that he is sitting over in that chair across from us. He is waiting patiently for us to centre our attention on him. When we see him, we start thinking more about his love than how sick Julie is. He smiles, gets up and comes over to us. Then let's both put our hands on Julie and when we do, Jesus put his hands on top of ours. We'll watch the light from Jesus flow into your little sister and make her well. Let's watch the healing power of Christ. Fight with our germs until they're all gone, okay? Seriously, the little one nodded. Together we prayed in this childlike way and then thanked the Lord that what we had prayed was the way it was going to be. Now I don't know exactly what happened, nor how it was accomplished, but I do know that the next morning, Julie was perfectly well. You don't have to be clever about it. I wonder what would happen if every parent in the room tonight with their child did that exercise about coronavirus. I wonder if we asked every child in our church to pray that kind of prayer over everyone that's sick and struggling in our world. We don't have to be clever about it. God will give us the ideas. He might give you a business solution. He might inspire you to see a relationship differently. Or he might just invite you to welcome him into the room. It doesn't have to be complicated, but it does mean us putting our attention on him and asking the Holy Spirit, even if it's, you know, when you're going to pray for someone, asking the Holy Spirit to just fill your mind for two minutes before you start praying and give you a vision of what the future looks like for that person, what, what he wants you to pray in, into. And it might even be, you know, a kind of, a, a sort of mind's eye glance of your neighbourhood. Take a, take a map walk with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit, and ask him to see things differently and pray into what he shows you. Now, just to be clear, this isn't wishful thinking. We're not just wishing things into being. We're talking about faith. And faith doesn't deny the reality of the problem. It just says that the reality that that person or situation is experiencing is not the final destination. Faith declares that the problem has no ultimate voice to govern and to control and to dictate. Only our good father gets that voice. Faith means praying with this expectancy that God will do something. It's like when a child asks for food with utter confidence that it will be provided. They don't store it away, worried that they won't get any tomorrow. They have full faith and dependency on their parent. And that's the kind of relationship we're invited to, this full dependency on God. Remember that picture painted for us in Revelation. We can have, we can have full confidence in Jesus and what he's done. 
And this kind of dependency actually gives us authority to pray, which is this final movement of the four. If we've gone through this process of repenting of our kingdoms, of receiving God's compassion for his people, and of asking for this kingdom vision, this prophetic imagination for the future, then we can be confident that we're praying the prayers that he wants us to pray as his children. And we can be sure that the spaces that we don't inhabit with our prayers will be inhabited by others. It matters that you pray. There are spiritual forces all around us that are battling, warring for, king, for the kingdom. And we have this incredible privilege as children of God to stand with Jesus and pray for his kingdom to come, for his rule and reign. That's what we're praying for, for in the lives of those around us. We're called to stand as friends of both heaven and earth. We're called with Jesus to stand as friends of both heaven and earth and pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Thanks for listening to some of our teaching here at Trinity. We hope it's blessed you. If you live in the city or live outside of Nottingham and want to connect more with the church, Check out some of our practices and pathways on our website. We call them one, few, company, and many. We're passionate about encountering Jesus, becoming like him, and doing the things that he did, both individually and in our lives together, so that we may see the church on fire and the city come alive. You can find these on our website under the Connect tab. Thanks for listening.